Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. I I don't even have words for this because (laughs) it's every Snow White dream I've ever had. Apparently, a mouse has been secretly filmed tidying a man's shed every night. (gasps) Yes, folks. You too can have little rodent housekeeper helpers because it's a thing now. That can't be real. What do you mean? Like tidying? What's he doing? (laughs) It's not only real. There's one and a half minutes of black and white footage rather close up. There is no mistaking what's happening here. Now, the person in question whose shed it is, is a wildlife photographer. Mm. So he was well equipped, but his name is Rodney Holbrook. And he had started noticing that objects he left out of place were mysteriously put back where they belonged overnight. Now, he's from Wales. I can't possibly begin to attempt the name of the locale that he's from, but he is, he's Welsh. Let that be known. The man is 75 years old, and he told the BBC, quote, it has been going on for months. I call him Welsh Tidy Mouse, which is frankly adorable. At first, I noticed that some food I was putting out for the birds was ending up in some old shoes I was storing in the shed. So I set up a camera. And in fact, he set up a night vision camera with footage that showed a seemingly conscientious rodent gathering clothespins, corks, nuts, bolts, and placing them in a tray. It's kind of almost like a cigar box with the lid off. Holbrook even experimented with leaving out different objects to see if the mouse could lift them, which seems a little scientific. But the creature was undeterred. He was even seen carrying cable ties to the pot. Quote, I don't bother to tidy up now as I know he will see to it. (laughs) Now, this is close to a similar incident that occurred in 2019. If you remember, there was a viral video that showed a mouse stockpiling items in a man's shed near Bristol. (laughs) The man, Steve McKears, told reporters he thought he was, quote, going mad when screws and metal objects kept reappearing in a box containing bird feed. British Isles, I don't know what you're doing to your rodents, but uh, maybe we could use some of that cleanup help over here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I want so badly to believe it's true, but I'm such a cynic. I'm like, he trained that mouse. He trained it. You can train mice. (gasps) In my brain, I was thinking the whole time, oh, he's a wildlife Truly? Both of you think Uh He spent his whole career around animals. He knows how to train them, get them close, get them comfortable. And now he's like, at 75, I'm finally going viral. Like, I just... (laughs) (laughs) But I don't want to believe that. I want to live in a world where little mice come and tidy up our garages. (laughs) Well, you know what? Why not both? Can we live in a world where you can have the Snow White experience? It just takes a little work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to live in a world where trained mice are for sale and I can get myself one. And tidying up, too, is kind of relative because I'm assuming that that rat was also leaving tiny little craps Mm. all over the place. That's true. We just get another animal to clean up the <laughs> mouse droppings and you get, yeah. Get some dung beetles. Then you got to get spiders. Right. Oh, yep. no. <laughs> uh, next link. 
Next link. Well, speaking of hoaxes, uh, this comes from Rare Historical Photos. The spaghetti tree hoax inside the 1957 BBC's April Fool's joke that caused a nationwide (gasps) uproar. And I also know we're nowhere close to uh, April Fool's, but this article Mm. came up and it's both delightful and a cautionary tale. Yeah, it's enough time for you to plan your own spaghetti tree hoax. Like people have forgotten (laughs) about it by April. (laughs) Okay. Imagine yourself in 1957 England and you turn on the telly (laughs) to see a picturesque family delicately plucking strands of spaghetti from a tree. (laughs) Absurd, right? I thought surely it was going to be something a little more complicated than that. But no, it's just a tree that grew spaghetti. Okay. All right. Uh (laughs) This scene aired on BBC's Panorama as a seemingly authentic report. For those that don't know, BBC's Panorama is, and I'll quote them, an investigative documentary series revealing the truth about the stories that matter, end quote. And here's the other twist. Spaghetti was a culinary mystery to many Brits back then. So when they witnessed this, quote, spaghetti (laughs) harvest on a program, they've only known to be serious news. Many people thought, They could grow their own pasta. I mean, fair enough, you know, like. Mm -hmm. But as the laughter subsided, chaos erupted. Newspaper (laughs) headlines blared, debates raged, and the nation found itself split over a simple truth. What? Spaghetti doesn't grow on trees. Listen, the dress is white and gold, okay? That's right, Mm -hmm. that's right. So it revealed both the power of the media and the unsuspecting gullibility of the populace. The man largely responsible for the hoax was Austrian-born panorama cameraman Charles de Jaeger, who apparently loved to play practical jokes. And he made a compelling case, assuring that he could handle the shoot economically while juggling another task in Switzerland. Panorama's editor, Michael Peacock, gave the nod, approving a tiny $100 budget for the project. That's a lot of spaghetti, though. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because he he used 20 pounds of spaghetti. Wow. He skillfully draped the strands over the branches of laurel cheese surrounding a lake, creating (laughs) spaghetti trees. (laughs) Adding to the spectacle, Diego recruited local women adorned in Swiss national attire. They playfully harvested the spaghetti, filling wicker baskets and strategically laying out the strands under the sun as they were being dried. So he also had to cook 20 pounds of spaghetti before <laughs> uh-huh. tinseling the yes. trees with them. Yes. Yeah, and apparently more than 20 pounds because there was an art he found that if it was too dry or if he put it out too soon, it would break. <laughs> So there was some trial and error to get it to hang exactly right. And then the hoax gained an air of authenticity with the involvement of the announcer Richard Dimbleby, a respected veteran broadcaster, and the BBC's inaugural war correspondent wasn't known for humor. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yet, with perfect seriousness, he contributed to the prank. He confidently reported an upcoming plentiful spaghetti harvest in Switzerland thanks to the almost complete eradication of the spaghetti tree's main predator, the spaghetti weevil. No. (laughs) Hold on, wait. 
they were saying uh-huh. that these trees grew in Switzerland? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not All Italy, right. but yeah, Switzerland. No. Yep, his voice accompanied footage of joyous Swiss women delicately plucking pasta strands from the tree branches, where he says, quote, Many people are puzzled by the fact that spaghetti is produced in such uniform lengths. This is the result of many years of patient endeavor by plant breeders who succeeded in producing the perfect spaghetti. Wow. I mean, look, in for a penny, in for a pound, man. If you're going to do it, lean right? in. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, too, right? Like, this is not a plant you propagate by seed. It's obviously by cuttings. Right, right. <laughs> or live roots. Grafting. Right. You know, you can go a lot of ways. Eight million people watched the show. Oh, wow. Hundreds reached out to the BBC, marveling at the video and inquiring about obtaining their personal spaghetti tree to cultivate noodles at home. (laughs) Playing along with the joke, the BBC humorously advised people to, quote, place a sprig of spaghetti in a tin of tomato sauce and hope for the best. (laughs) It has to grow in tomato sauce, not even dirt. I mean, come on. (laughs) What's fun is that also doubled as just general cooking instructions by British authority. And some, rightly, heavily criticized the broadcasters for deceiving their viewers. David Wheeler, the program's producer, showed no remorse for his involvement in the spaghetti (laughs) frenzy. He defended the prank, stating, I think it was a good idea for people to be aware they couldn't believe everything they saw on television. Well, and listen, the BBC's official advice was put it in a can of sauce and hope for the best. And I think hope for the best is like your average advice with British cooking. (laughs) So, like, they're not wrong. They are helping. Right. They really did their very best. Beans on toast. Hope for the best. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I love you, England. All right. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next one is called What If Earth Suddenly Stopped Spinning? Oh, dear. And it is from one of my favorite people on the planet, Randall Monroe. Do you guys know that name? No. Oh, I'm so excited to tell you. So he does the webcomic <laughs> XKCD, which you may have seen. Ah, uh, yeah. He also has a number of books, one of which is the What If series, where he takes ridiculous questions and answers them in the most scientific way possible. And obviously none of this is sponsored. We don't do that. I'm just a massive fan. So... Like I said, the question being asked here is, what if Earth and everything on it suddenly stopped spinning with the particular caveat that the atmosphere maintained its velocity? (laughs) And I suspect the reason the question is written this way is because it's pretty obvious what would happen if just the Earth stopped spinning, right? We'd all suddenly go flying eastward at astronomical speeds. But could we maybe survive if we stopped too and only had to deal with the continued airflow of the atmosphere? Spoiler alert, no, not really. No, that's fast air. <laughs> yeah. But we wouldn't all necessarily die right away. So the first thing we want to calculate is how fast would the wind be blowing? At the equator, the Earth rotates at 470 meters per second, or a little over 1,000 miles an hour. That means relativistically, the air at the equator would suddenly be blowing past us at 470 meters per second, which, aside from being five times higher than the worst hurricane ever recorded, It is also quite a bit higher than the sound barrier, which is only Mm -hmm. 343 meters per second. So it's safe to assume that almost everything at the equator would be obliterated in an instant. I say almost because there are structures that could theoretically withstand that level of wind, partly because they would only have to withstand it for a few minutes until the air slowed down and stopped too due to friction with the Earth. A bullet, for example, also travels at around 1,000 miles per hour, or sometimes even faster. So if you had some kind of aerodynamic bulletproof bunker, it could maybe hold up. 
The problem is, and this is Randall Monroe quoting the comedian Ron White when he talked about hurricanes, it's not that the wind is blowing, it's what the wind is blowing. (laughs) Anything close to your bunker that didn't withstand the wind, which is pretty much everything, would now be turned into a projectile with considerably more mass than the wind, and that would almost certainly destroy, bury, and otherwise flatten your bunker. But because we're talking about rotation on a vertical axis, the instantaneous blast of wind at the moment the Earth stopped would be slower the further you moved toward the poles, and they would drop below supersonic speeds at around 42 degrees north and 42 degrees south, which is roughly the latitude of Boston or where Randall Monroe happens to live, so that's good for him. But even those winds at 330 meters per second would still be twice as fast as the strongest real-world tornadoes, and it is worth noting that 85% of the world's population does live within the supersonic latitudes. But what about really close to the North and South Pole? So the highest latitude city on the planet is Svalbard in Norway, and it would only experience winds equivalent to the strongest tropical cyclones we know today. That being said, it is an island, so the storm surge of water over its western shores would still be pretty devastating. And at the South Pole itself, we have the Amundsen-Scott Research Station, where the scientists stationed there would basically feel no change at all, other than the sudden loss of all communication with the rest of Earth. It's also important to realize that all of this is happening on the surface, so anyone who is even a few feet below ground at the time the Earth stopped rotating, say, in a subway tunnel or a lower floor of a building, they would be completely fine, (laughs) other than the fact that whatever exit they had to the surface will now be covered in debris, and society as they know it will have collapsed. Yeah, I got food down there. That's fine. That's right. Last for a little while. It's not a problem. Uh But let's go back to those storm surges for a minute, because while the oceans are doing normal storm things up near Svalbard, they're doing really weird things down by the equator. The winds sweeping over the water at, again, speeds of about 1,000 miles per hour, would churn up the water to such a degree that for a while, the ocean would cease to have a surface at all. It would be impossible to tell where the sea ended and the spray began or where the spray eased up into very humid air. Also, remember how we said the air would slow back down over the course of a few minutes due to friction with the Earth? Well, friction, as we know, causes heat. And this would lead to a massive amount of evaporation of that lovely churned up sea spray leading to worldwide thunderstorms over all the oceans. Ooh, romantic. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, while Svalbard is having a bad storm surge, all the westward coastlines closer to the equator would be suffering from a massive tsunami. Not because the water didn't stop rotating, because we assumed it did, but just because the winds would be that powerful. And he's got a theoretically roughly-to-scale-ish map of what that would look like, with water reaching about halfway across Mexico and then following the Rocky Mountains all the way up through North America, most of Europe completely submerged, most of India, all of the Pacific Islands, and about a third of Africa and a fourth of Australia. But we're all dead from the wind at that point, so what do we care? But let's assume, somehow, that we make it through all of that. The next big issue we'd have to deal with is we no longer have a day and night cycle as we know it. The sun would still move across the sky, but only with our annual rotation around the sun, meaning we'd have roughly six months of day and then six months of night each year, and those long days and nights would be much hotter and much colder than we experience now. That being said, it wouldn't stay that way forever, because the moon, critically, has not stopped rotating around the Earth in this scenario. Currently, the Earth's tidal bulge, which is caused by the moon's gravity, makes Earth slightly elliptical rather than perfectly round. And this shape actually causes the moon to slightly slow down our rotation and pushes the moon into a very slightly but steadily higher orbit over time. Once the Earth stopped, 
that relationship would be reversed, with the moon now tugging forward on our lack of rotation and being dragged down into a lower orbit itself. Whoa, moonfall was fact? Kind of. (laughs) (laughs) And over a very, very, very long time, and sadly he doesn't say how long, but one has to assume millions of years at least, this would eventually cause the Earth's rotation to come back up to speed being tugged on by the moon. But you're right. If you have a bunker and you had enough food and you could somehow figure out to, like, stay on the twilight line, like, just migrate around the Earth on a yearly cycle so you weren't burned to death or frozen, you could live, maybe. Well, it's a good thing we've got all those rockets that are going to take us to Mars soon. Yeah, yeah. Mars still rotates. We're good there. So. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. From the bite via futurism.com. A university is enrolling AI-powered students. What? As a professor, I'm pissed. (laughs) What What does that mean? Well, if you are one of those lucky attendees at Ferris State University in Michigan, soon you're going to be sharing the classroom with AI-powered freshman students. I hope you can hear my little finger quotes there. Right, right. Who are going to enroll in classes alongside them. And we will be grading on a curve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're not going to have humanoid robot bodies. Obviously, we didn't have enough in the budget for that. But they will be interacting with students via computers and also microphones and speakers. Wow. AI students dubbed Anne and Fry will be listening and even actively participate in discussions with other students. I am amazed that they named it Fry. Like, right. It's a little uh, little on the nose. A little on the nose. Like, it's not going to start off real smart, but we're going to give them a go. <laughs> right. I guess the theory is that, like, a class of three people can't generate good discussion. So they just want to put a couple ringers in there so that the real kids in the class do get, like, the, quote, college experience, even if there's not enough kids registered. That's a pretty tightly focused hypothesis. I'm just being hopeful. I'm yeah. trying to find some reason. I mean, wh- why? Normally people have to pay to be in the class. That's a great question. You are not alone in throwing up your hands and beseeching an answer. <laughs> now, the institution wants to explore the, quote, transformational impact of emerging artificial intelligence technology, connecting high school students with potential educational and career pathways in evolving and increasingly important fields. And yes, Uh, even the author ends that with whatever the heck that means. Yeah, that's not an answer. That's nonsense. (laughs) No, it's not. But it made some boards of directors really happy to move money around, I'm sure. Now, okay, to be fair, Thompson is rolling the dice. They're going to let these two AI students, quote, decide which undergrad degree to pursue. (laughs) Like any student, our hope is that they continue their educational experience all the way up as far as they can go through their PhD. But we are literally learning as we go, and we're Uh, allowing the two AI students to pick the courses that they're going to take. I hope one of them drops out and does drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, we'll stay with robots, but these aren't AI. (laughs) Yet? Yet? (laughs) Yes, yes, exactly. This comes from New Outlets. Housekeeping robot quickly learns a range of autonomous chores. Yeah, but is it faster than a mouse? (laughs) (laughs) It may poop less. Right, that's true. Mm Stanford and Google DeepMind researchers have presented an open source housekeeping robot. 
and trained it relatively quickly to saute shrimp, rinse <laughs> out pans. Why is that the first thing? What? I don't know. It's in the video too. Honestly, sautéing shrimp happens so quickly that you can't multitask. And so if That's you true. could set a robot to do it, I know my mom would have perked up at that one. Yeah, and it can put away pots in the kitchen cabinet, Thank clean up you. wine spills, yes. but it has greater ambitions to rule the world. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> They're calling it the Mobile Aloha, which I'm assuming Aloha is an acronym for something, but they don't say what. Care to take a guess? I tried to think of something good here, but I appropriation of Hawaiian something. Yeah, I mean the A has <laughs> got to be autonomous. That surely uh-huh. is it. The robot doesn't look like what you think it looks like. It's not looking like the Jetson robot yet. Aww. Yeah, there's a flattish wheelbase with a 12-hour battery pack weighing it down. Hmm. It supported an ugly mess of scaffolding. There's a laptop on it and a pair of clawed robotic arms that twist at the wrists Mm -hmm. and have 14 degrees of freedom. Oh, just like mom used to have. (laughs) So imagine one of those laptop carts that the nurses bring in. Yeah. But with robot arms. Okay. (laughs) And then on the other side of this aesthetic disaster, a removable training setup can be grafted, which gives the operator the ability to push the bot around and operate its arms and claws manually to train it. Mm. To kind of looks like the claws on the opposite side. But here's the good news, everybody. The 165-pound robot is open source. The project team gives you a parts list and a guide on how to build the thing for yourself. Hmm. And it's relatively low-cost build. Considering its capabilities, it can be yours for as little as 30 grand. <laughs> I mean, not honestly as much as I thought. I'm not yeah. saying I'm shelling out that kind of money, but no, okay. No. You do need a glue gun and a 3D printer. Probably <laughs> one of the 20 grand 3D printers. Though. Right. And then you at your own house can train away, augmenting the skills of Aloha that it already knows in its previous training. So the team says running through a task 50 times increases the chance the robot can do the task autonomously by up to 90%. Hmm. They have three videos in the article, and the first one, it does show it sauteing the shrimp, setting a table, (laughs) making a bed, and a few other chores. However, full disclosure when watching the video, none of the footage is actually autonomous at this point. Hmm. The bot is still being teleoperated. But it gives an insight into the kinds of things we can expect housekeeping robots to take over mm-hmm. in the not too distant future. Yeah. <laughs> After my death, one way or the other. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, what is refreshingly rare is that they also released another video showing it messing up a lot and why mm. it's still not ready for commercial. Yeah. Did anybody watch any of the strange new robots at CES this year? Mm-mm. The trend I noticed. There's a lot of robot dog type things or robots for your dog. Hmm. That was the biggest robot trend. I think it's because a lot of people got dogs during COVID right. and now are going to work. To be fair, if a robot can pass the socialization threshold that a dog requires, maybe that's our uncanny valley. Mm-hmm. Like Dogs need time and social engagement. It is part of their mental health. And to expect a robot to do it, I don't know. Yeah, but that robot, it throws the ball. Yeah. And now <laughs> the robots are training the dogs and now they're going to have canine units attached to all the murderous robots. Aww. That's right. It's a whole new world out there for robots, not for us. Right, Our days right. are numbered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
All right. This next one is from Vice News, and it's called The Farm to Prison Pipeline. Ooh. And it's happier than it sounds. It's basically a profile of a particular program at the Mountain View Correctional Facility in Charleston, Maine, where someone thought to themselves, what if prisoners actually ate healthy food? Oh, hey. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's much not what much I better pictured. than like yeah, farmers okay. going to prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or us like having prisoners farm is what I actually yeah. was thinking. Well, yeah. it kind of is that, but for their own benefit, not for other people's. <laughs> uh, so, so Mark McBride is the culinary director at Mountain View, which houses 350 inmates in a minimum security setting. And he says when he started there six years ago, the majority of the food was, not surprisingly, highly processed. And the assumption would be, well, yeah, because it's cheaper, right? But he says that actually, since they've started buying produce from local farmers and training inmates on how to properly prepare it, which eliminates both your transportation costs and the preparation costs normally associated with healthier foods, they've actually been saving around $142,000 a year. Heck yeah! And the benefits of this are numerous. First of all, the prisoners are simply happier eating tastier food. Most of the inmates who come to Mountain View say it's the best meal they've had since they've been locked up, and it's not hard to see how happier prisoners are going to be better behaved prisoners. Troy Glidden, who is the head chef and also a prisoner at Mountain View, says, quote, I go back to my dorm and they're shaking my hand because the food is so good. There's also the idea, which is harder to quantify, but I do think there's something to it, that there is an undeniable connection between what you put into your body and your mental state, which means healthier prisoners are also better behaved prisoners. And then long term, there are the benefits of skills training and rehabilitation. Much of the produce is grown by the prisoners themselves at the prison's own farm just across the street, including eggplant, kale, Chinese cabbage, cauliflower, tomatoes, and more. Being able to work on the farm is considered a privilege that the prisoners are happy to work toward because it means they get to go outside. And there's a direct sense of pride between the work they're doing and the food they get to eat that night at dinner. And I think to your point, that's really important. They're not farm labor for free for other people. They are growing their own food and then they get to enjoy that. Right. It's a self-sufficiency loop where you are doing labor, but you literally get to enjoy the fruits of that. Exactly. Yeah. It doesn't go to somebody (laughs) else. 100 percent. It's still like is 100 percent of it going back. Oh, it is because they can't quite grow enough for all of them. They grow some and then they buy the rest Uh, from farmers because 350 people is a lot of people to feed. Yeah. But the same goes for the kitchen staff, who are now being trained to do more than just rehydrate spaghetti sauce, which they were already doing before. Prisoners were running the kitchens in the processed food days. Now they're growing their own spaghetti. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They've been taught very high levels of hydroponics. (laughs) But they're being taught real world cooking skills that will ideally help them find employment after their sentence is over. And to that end, there is even a higher level apprenticeship program led by professional chef Mark Sparr who teaches inmates more advanced culinary skills that will allow them to work as real chefs instead of just cooks once they get out. Mm. Inmates who sign up to this program must commit to participating for a full year, ultimately putting in about a 1,000 hours of work time, making things like handmade pasta with delicate garnishes, most of which, admittedly, they still can't afford to serve to the prison as a whole, but some lucky prisoners do get to eat it. And all of this came about because in 2015, the Maine legislature instructed its prison system to create, quote, some sort of agricultural program to benefit the prisoners. And it's not clear what other prisons in the state may be doing. But at Mountain View, they got a little lucky because McBride, the culinary director, 
was already working there as a correctional officer. And he just happened to have run his own organic farm before taking the job. (laughs) And there's maybe something a little depressing in that because it sounds like maybe he wasn't making enough money as a farmer. So he had to take the job at the prison. But it definitely worked out for him in the end because now he's basically a full time farmer again. So a lot of the support from the program has also come from the state's prisons commissioner, whose name is, ironically, Randy Liberty. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, man. I didn't mean to laugh at your name, but. (laughs) He notes that his own father was incarcerated multiple times, so he's personally very aware of both the trauma of having family members incarcerated as well as the struggles that come from eating cheaper subsidized food when you're trying to live on a single parent's income. As for detractors who say, and this is a quote from the article, prison is for felons and it should suck, Liberty says the punishment is being isolated from your family and from the community. Healthy food is a basic human right, and we should provide the best meals that we can for our children in schools, and same with those people that are in our custody in correctional facilities. Obviously, the parallel between children in schools and people in prisons. Oh, there are so many parallels, though, y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every school should have a little farm. Absolutely. Pizza is not a vegetable. Yes, I have to say, though, on the other hand, my school tried to have a farm and it didn't go so well. What happened? It just takes a lot of work. Like, farming it is, is a lot of genuinely work. hard. Yes, yeah. and, it's, and it may fail. There are years that that's going to happen. That is part of the lesson of becoming a gardener. Right. I say this as a wise person who's been doing it five years now. Oh, (laughs) you're ready for prison. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. From Nautilus. Are you hypnotizable? Mm -mm. Oh, I want to say no, but I'm sure the article is going to tell me yes. (laughs) So in the more than 200 years since the practice of contemporary hypnosis was described by German physician Franz Mesmer. Mm, Ah, I didn't know that. That's nice. Oh, yeah. And the Alan Rickman movie where he plays the titular Mesmer. Bucket (gasps) list. Wow. (laughs) I've never heard of this. Alan Rickman. Oh, I got to see it now. It is a deep cut, but you're welcome. Anyhow, ever since the practice of hypnosis came about, Public perception of it has kind of seesawed, right? Sometimes we're skeptical. Sometimes it seems a little more credible. But today, hypnotherapy is used to provide therapeutic remedy for depression, substance use disorders, and even certain traumas. And these uses are supported to a certain extent by research evidence. That being said, many still consider hypnosis more of a cheap magician's trick. And maybe this is because very few of us are actually easily hypnotized because only about 10% of the population seems to respond well to it. So researchers and clinicians, they tend to use one of two scales to measure an individual's susceptibility. We've got the Stanford Hypnotic Susceptibility Scale, and that's usually used on individuals, and the Harvard Group Scale, and the Harvard one's usually used to identify potential subjects for research. But in either Mm. case, a researcher induces hypnosis with a script, and the script aims to convince the person to relax, focus, and follow instructions, and then tests that person on a series of suggestions or instructions and ranks the depth of their response, whether it's physiological, sensory, behavioral, or emotional. One of the suggestions, for example, involves telling the person they have no sense of smell, which is kind of in this post-COVID world, I don't know, (laughs) a little bit. But then what they'll do is they say, hey, you have no sense of smell, then wave a vial of peppermint oil under their nose. And if they fail to respond physically or identify the scent, they get a point, Mm, hypnotized. Mm. 
Now, the scales for both the Stanford and Harvard measures, both of them range from zero to 12 points, 12 being highly hypnotizable. And the people who do score on that highest end, they're known as hypnotic virtuosos, which is such a cool <laughs> name. That makes it sound like such a good thing. Like, uh-huh. it's not your gullibility score. It's well, <laughs> listen, in some ways it is. Like, imagine if you were one of these types of people and you were put in the right hands. It could be like, what a perfect sleeper cell yeah. agent, right? But Or to be able to, like, shut down your pain system at will. Like, exactly. Yeah, I can see how. Okay. Oh, it could have so many potential uses. But of course, you know... <laughs> The potential for abuse is also Mm -hmm. right. But there is one hypnotic virtuoso, a Finnish woman, and they abbreviate her initials to TSH. She's an office worker who has no history of psychiatric or neurological illnesses, but she has been the study of numerous hypnosis studies because she consistently receives the maximum score of 12. She reports experiencing vivid auditory and visual hallucinations through suggestion, like hearing voices when instructed to do so. She also slips into what is known as the trance stare. (laughs) Now, it's a real state that features a decreased blink rate and the loss of a point of fixation in the eyes, which is important because these are measurable physiological changes that control subjects in studies on hypnosis have reportedly not been able to imitate voluntarily. And that's the big thing because a lot of people will try to fake. Oh, I've been done. No, 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 no. Now, part of what makes a person hypnotizable may also have a genetic component, according to a couple of studies. But yet, concrete insights into what separates the hypnotizable from the rest of us, pretty scarce. I mean, we got some research from the 80s that suggests a facility for becoming absorbed in a task like reading or theater performance might Mm. make someone more susceptible to hypnosis. It sounds like if you're in that flow state, right? Yeah. Yeah. It means actors would be really good at being hypnotized because they're used to sort of shutting down their actual experiences and sort of imagining that they're experiencing what's around them. And they've practiced that separation. Yeah. And even musicians on that front that can let themselves, Mm -hmm. quote unquote, let themselves go. It was one issue Mm -hmm. I never had on stage. I could never let myself go. Right. Stupid. I was always thinking about what I looked like, where I am in space. Yeah. What's the next measure? What am I going to do? What's the next measure? What's going on? And that's part Um, of the issue is control. There's a new paper in which the authors, psychologists from Burnmouth University, they propose that successful hypnosis is ultimately about the patient and the psychologists cite evidence that self-hypnosis is just as clinically effective at reducing pain, stress and anxiety and overcoming delusions as hypnosis that's guided by a therapist. So. A.K.A. meditation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're sort of blurring that line at some point. We're like, okay, this is something that people can do. They can enter this state willingly. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of whether someone's like, okay, now let's try to process that trauma versus now you're going to cluck like a chicken. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And if you're not an exhibitionist, there is an app that they do name check in here called Reverie. R-E-V-E-R-I. It was designed by Stanford clinical research psychiatrist David Spiegel and his colleagues. And with the help of Spiegel's own voice, the app guides the user through a self-hypnotic induction. Hmm. You're instructed to roll your eyes upward. They give a series of suggestions. Making a uh, Manchurian candidate there with that app. Right. Mm -hmm. That's right. They're recruiting for those sleeper cell agents. So download the app today. (laughs) Yeah. And it's collecting location data. So when someone gets a good score, they know where to find you. (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include a self-eating engine could make rockets more efficient, 
huge ancient lost city found in the Amazon, and humans can smell each other's emotions, but we don't know how. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.